0: This is Ron Stockton. Okay, I want to talk to you about the Kahan Commission Report, K-A-H-A-N. That's the report on the Sabra and Shatila massacres that took place in September of 1982. So, um, I want to talk to you uh, about the report, but we need to review a little bit about exactly what happened in those massacres i'm holding that report by the way i've got it right here in front of me and uh let me see how long is that thing about 130 pages maybe and uh and uh including an an introduction by a famous israeli leader um abba iban Uh, this is a very thorough uh, they interviewed 58 witnesses they released this in uh so this massacre started on the sixteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth. Okay, sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth. Anyway, it was it was three days to uh, three three days, and um, the report came out in February of nineteen eighty three. So they didn't waste a lot of time. It's not like one of those two year uh, investigations that uh, we we do in this country. Um, You remember that uh, Bashir Jamail Bashir, B-A-S-H-I-R, was assassinated. He was this really charismatic, he was like a hero to his followers. And his followers, these guys, they have their own party. It's called the Falange, P-H-A-L-A-N-G-E. And they had their own military, their own militia. It was called the Lebanese Forces. And uh, he was a tough guy, but... Uh, but he had reached a point where he was elected president of Lebanon, and uh he had not yet been sworn in, but he was meeting with his top commanders, I think, and a bomb went off and and he he was killed and so this was shocking I mean they're hero their're absolute hero uh um, uh let me let me see where is it I wanted to read you something um uh oh shoot never mind anyway they were shocked i mean he personified in his body the future of a peaceful and united lebanon according to his followers to his enemies he personified uh, uh, the exact opposite so he was assassinated at his he was replaced actually by his brother this is kind of a family operation and uh, he was replaced by his brother, and uh, whose name is Amin, A-M-I-N. And at the funeral, which took place very soon after the assassination, Amin used the word revenge. He was killed on the the 14th. On the 15th, the Israeli military took control of West Beirut. Now Beirut is divided, it's got two parts to it. The East is the Christian side and the West is the Muslim side. So the Israeli army moved in and took over the Western, West Beirut. And that's the that's the Muslim side. Uh, the next day, the massacre started. How many people died? The Israeli military Estimates seven to eight hundred, maybe nine hundred. The Palestinian Red Crescent—that's their Red Cross. So they have uh, numbers. They have names of three thousand people. Um, a lot of people died. Remember that the Palestinian military units had been evacuated from Beirut, and they were now in Tunis. So those camps were left un, uh, unprotected. And they had taken all their uh, weaponry, there were some light arms, you know, there were a few handguns and things like that in the camps. But basically all the all the heavy um, weaponry had been taken off to Tunis. So those camps were just sitting there. And uh, the Israeli, the um, phalangists, Wanted revenge. So, oh, here's the quote I was looking looking to uh, read to you. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> the Israeli chief of staff, whose name is Itan E I T A N. Um, here's what he said. Here's what he told. Um, oh, here's what he said. Yesterday, a group of phalangist officers came. They were stunned, still stunned, and they cannot conceive to themselves how their hope was destroyed in one blow, a hope for which they built and sacrificed so much. And now they have just one thing left to do, and that is revenge, and it will be terrible. Everyone knew there was going to be massacres. I I don't think anybody thought anything different. The phalangists entered the uh, camps on the 16th. They encountered light fire. That means a few people with pistols fired at them. But the artillery, the heavy weaponry, the assault weapons, the AK-47s, those uh, they were all gone. And the massacre started. During the night, they went on day and night. The Israelis would illuminate the camps with flares, so uh, the the killing could continue. Um, there are a couple of stories reported in this. In this report, by the way, Kahan was the head of the uh, israeli supreme court he 's a really respected person. They had two other judges just really top notch people so these people didn 't have a political agenda they were they were just doing a uh, uh, an investigation and uh, and there had been massive protests in uh, in Israel against the war and also against these massacres and the Americans were leaning on Israel. We were horrified by these massacres, the Reagan administration was, and we leaned very heavily on the Israelis to set up this commission. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, there were many Israelis, including the opposition, uh, Shimon Peres, he was the opposition leader, he later became prime minister, and uh, he was in favor of this, and that will come up in a minute. And uh, of course, the government, including uh, Prime Minister Begin, hard right winger, we've talked about him. His uh, his uh, foreign minister, Yitzhak Shamir, S-H-A-M-I-R, another hard right winger, he became the next prime minister. And especially the Minister of Defense, Ariel Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N, we've talked about him. He was basically the the, the godfather of this uh, invasion of Lebanon, the Lebanese war. And so uh, he was totally opposed, and we're going to talk about his speech to the Knesset. Wow. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. So uh, uh, the massacres started, they would end for three days. The uh, phalangists reported two casualties. A casualty means somebody got wounded. Uh, one, someone got shot in the leg, and another, I can't remember. But uh, neither was very serious. And, uh, and uh, so later they reported someone had been killed, one of their people had been killed. I don't know the details of that. The report doesn't go into that. Bulldozers remo- Were Bulldozers began moving into the camps, what did they have bulldozers for? I don't know. They weren't bulldozing buildings. Many people think they were digging mass graves. I, I really don't know. So, um, well, I read you. I said I wanted to tell you stories. There are two stories that are in the um, that are in the report about the uh, about how obvious it was that there were massacres going on. And they had these, uh, they had captured these recordings. Obviously, there was a lot of electronic spying going on. So they had transcripts of these conversations that took place. So one is a commander who was told by one of his officers, we got 45 civilians here. What are we supposed to do with them? And this person said, do the will of God. That's pretty ominous, isn't it? And then Ili Hobeika, H-O-B-E-I-K-A. You uh, you probably don't have to remember that unless you're a a Lebanese uh, politics geek, but he was a really tough, nasty guy. Uh, Ili Hobeika got a phone call, a a call from one of his officers, and he said, we've got 50 women and children. What are we supposed to do with them? And Hobeika said... This is the last time you're going to ask me a question like that. You know exactly what to do. And uh, the report says uh, that an Israeli uh, officer, an Israeli soldier, uh, asked a, a phalangist commander, why are you killing women and children? And he said a pregnant woman will give birth to terrorists and children will grow up to be terrorists that's very similar so why you know it's a little baby now but in 20 years it's going to be a, it's going to be in in uniform and uh, we're just going to have to kill them then you know this is almost exactly what general patton said at the end of the second world war when germany didn't have any food and they were starving and there was an effort to mobilize food supplies and general patton said why should we feed them we're just going to, if their babies let them die, we're just going to have to kill them in 20 years anyway. So that's a certain, certain way of looking at the world, I guess. So the Israeli cabinet issued a statement. In the wake of the assassination of the president-elect Bashir Jamal. The IDF has seized positions in West Beirut. Now, I told you they had captured the Muslim half of Beirut. In order to forestall the danger of violence, bloodshed, and chaos, as some 2,000 terrorists equipped with modern and heavy weapons have remained in Beirut in flagrant violation of the evacuation agreement. Now, you remember there was an agreement to evacuate the Palestinian commandos. And when the Israeli cabinet uses the word terrorist, they're referring to Palestinians here. Two thousand terrorists equipped with modern and heavy weaponry. They were supposed to all be in Tunis. No, they're still there. There's uh, this appears to be totally fabricated, and and I'll read you in a minute. They they issued a, a statement later saying, "Oh, the two thousand terrorists are now not in Beirut, but they're in in and Shatila camps." They also issued another statement that. Uh, Suggesting that there were any Israelis involved in this in any way whatsoever, this is a blood libel. Now, that's a very powerful, uh, powerful word. I've got uh, in the uh, in in the in the folder, the reading, the files folder uh, under uh, Jews and Zionism. There's a thing on blood libel, and and I think you you might want to read that uh, right now, just so you can see what they're talking about. In the Middle Ages, uh, there were accusations that Jews uh, would, when a Christian child would disappear, probably fell down a well or something, you know, but a Christian child would disappear, they would say, Oh, the Jews stole that child and killed it and uh, drained its blood so that they could make their uh, special uh, bread that they used for their religious services. This was called the blood libel. This is a blood libel against the Jewish state and its government, an accusation the government rejects with repugnance. And then they repeated, this is an official statement of the cabinet, and then they repeated the story about 12,000 terrorists and vast stocks of weapons being in the camps. Now suddenly, they've moved from Beirut to in the camps. No one will preach, and then they get really angry that anybody is suggesting that they might actually do such a thing, be involved in massacres. No one will preach to us moral values or respect for human life on whose basis we were educated, i.e. the Holocaust, and will continue to educate generations of fighters in Israel. This is really defiant right-wing Israeli rhetoric. The the report gave a reported an interview with a man named yaron he was y-a-r-o-n he was uh, again you don't have to remember that but he was the one of the top two commanders itan e-i-t-a-n and yaron were the two military uh generals who were in charge of of, of lebanon and they they interviewed him and he said uh we're all responsible, including me. I mean, yeah, thanks a lot. Everybody should have known. Everybody should have done something. We're all responsible. I'm sorry. I was responsible too. Come on. Someone sitting in, in, uh, in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv is not nearly as responsible as a military commander who has forces in Beirut in the Beirut area. That's, not, uh, that's just equivocation. Um, all right, let's talk about Air, Air, how Ariel Sharon reacted to the very idea of of this report, he went to the Knesset. Just a minute, I got to find my pages here. He went to the Knesset and delivered up an absolutely fiery speech. His that's his personality. He's fiery. I mean, uh, he was called a bulldozer. That was his nickname, among other things. I'm sure the Lebanese had other terms for him. But uh, anyway, he was called a bulldozer. And uh, Prime Minister Begin once said, I think I might've quoted, told you this. He, he once said, I expect to wake up some morning and find the Prime Minister's um, office surrounded by, uh, surrounded by tanks. Ariel Sharon has taken over the country. Uh, anyway, Sharon went down, to the, uh, went down to the Knesset. He was minister of defense. Now, you're going to have to remember, I'm so sorry, that we're not doing this live because this kind of re- re- requires some demonstration of what's going on. Okay, imagine that that I'm standing in front of you. We're all in the class, right, and I'm standing in front of you. And so the the professor's lecture podium, that's, that's where Sharon was speaking from. That's like the front of the Knesset. And then to the right, just in front of him, you've got, some benches. And that's where the government sits. The prime minister and all the ministers during debate, they'll be there. So there'll be th- those benches on the right, that's where they sit. And then there are benches on the left where the opposition sits. And that's uh, Sharon and, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Perez and, and his, uh, his shadow cabinet, his, his uh, potential, his party leaders who would be the government if they won the next election. And then imagine that behind me, where I'm standing in front of you, behind me is pointing to the West Bank. That's the Palestinian territories. So, let me just read to you Sharon's words here. Um, They're saying that we are responsible. The The ones responsible are the Lebanese. And those indirectly responsible are the PLO terrorists. So who's responsible for these killings? Well, the PLO is, of course the PLO is responsible for everything in, in Sharon's way of thinking. And uh, the Lebanese, they're responsible. Well, we've already said the, the uh, Lebanese were the ones who were actually in the camps. Now did I tell you, I think I skipped this. Oh my gosh, I meant to tell you a story. I was once in an Arab country and I was at a reception. I was talking to the minister. I uh, sorry to the American ambassador, and uh, he was a really experienced ambassador. And somehow the conversation turned to uh, to these massacres, and he said, uh, "The American political officer—that's that's like the number two person in in the embassy, uh, or at least a very high ranking person," and. He went into the camp right after the massacre. I said he did. I read they were closed. It was closed. Well, it was, but he went in, and uh, he said the, uh, the story that the Israeli soldiers were not in there is absolutely untrue. And I was a bit stunned by this. And he said he wrote a report on this. And I said, uh, "How can I get a copy of that report?" And he looked at me and he said, "You will never see that report. No one will ever see that report. That report is sealed. You have to have authorization, special authorization, to read that, and you have to sign statements, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. I don't know the truth here. I I trust that ambassador. He didn't make that up. Anyway, Ariel Sharon, he's standing in front of the Knesset. He's a bull of a man. I mean, he is a giant man, and he and he weighed, uh, you know, three hundred pounds. And he and he lo- and he looked like the kind of guy who would knock you in the head, which is exactly the kind of military commander he was. Someone once said the president of Azer uh, uh, Weizmann, who was the president of uh, a, a top military commander, and and later became the president of of Israel said uh, in combat I would follow Ariel Sharon into hell but in politics I will not follow him across the street. So he was really a tough guy and he used really really harsh words. He was known to scream and shout and uh, not a temperate person at all. When we agreed to the entry of the Palestinians of the phalangists into the refugee camps senior commanders distinctly told them and I quote that a military force would be allowed into the Shatila camp to seek out and destroy terrorists. The action was to be taken against terrorists. Do not harm civilian population especially women, children and the elderly. So that was that was his position. We we absolutely gave them orders do not, do not, do not. harm any innocent person. Now, we're going to get back to Appendix B in in just a minute. So, at this point, Sharon is getting hissed. He's making some statements, and he's getting hissed. And he said, uh, the opposition leaders are shouting, resign, resign. And that's what you do in Parliament. You're allowed to do that as long as you don't insult people personally. So, I know you would like for me to resign. The Americans would like for me to resign. All of you would like for me to resign. He's getting a little little wild here at this point. And he says, not only do you want to replace me, the Americans want to replace me, but there's a difference in why you, and he points over, To the left, now you see, if this were show and tell, and we were in a class, I would point, so you would see. He points over to the left where the opposition is. There's a reason why you, who toady up to the Americans, toady, oh, that's so, oh, that's disrespectful. Why you want to replace me, and why the Americans want to replace me, you want to replace me because you want these seats over here. And he points to where the government is sitting. You want to sit around this table. You want to become the government. You want to get rid of me, and you want to become the government yourselves. The Americans want to replace me, not because their objective is Beirut. They don't care about Beirut. But because their objective is Jerusalem. Their objective is Hebron. Their objective is Bethel. Their objective is Elon Mora and Ariel. And you, in your collaboration, are deliberately lending a hand to the replacement of Israel. In order to get power, with the help of others, foreigners, and to give up parts of the land of Israel, Eretz Israel. In other words, the West Bank is Israel. It's not the West Bank, it's not the Palestinian-occupied territories, it's Israel. It's Eretz Israel. We'll talk about that term uh, in, in the next lecture, I think. You, your objective is this table, he points to the right. Their objective Is it there? Okay, now what did I tell you? that If I were standing in front, we would pretend that behind me was the West Bank. So he throws his arm up in the air and he says, it's there, and he points to the West Bank. You, in linking up with them, are helping them to implement the comprehensive solution presented to us. This was Ronald Reagan's proposal to uh, to, uh, what he called a comprehensive solution that would solve all the problems. Dream on. Which is handing over parts of the land of Israel. You will not succeed. No, we're not going to pull out of the West Bank. No, we're not going to give them one square inch. No, that's the plan. We're going to create a Palestinian mini-state there. No, we're not going to do that. They will not succeed. You will not succeed in eliminating Israel. Oh, my gosh. That's kind of a strong set of statements. And then... uh, just a minute. You're throwing oil on the fire of anti-Semitism, a bonfire of blood libels. A blood, a bonfire. What an image. A bonfire of blood libels. How has such a choir of poison and hatred? arisen among us that is among us israelis self-hatred like this to suggest that we are guilty of the massacre in beirut that's a that's a pretty powerful statement Got headlines in a lot of newspapers. All the Israeli newspapers, New York Times, all of, this got a lot of attention. Uh, Just a minute, I gotta read to you something, what they wrote. Now, where is this thing? Uh, Oh, here we go, page 57. I gotta read this to you. This is really, really amazing. I think this uh, document is amazing. I think this report is amazing. That's got some things you can uh, question and uh, a lot of things we learned later that aren't in it. So that's not a fair criticism to say we've learned other stuff later. But uh, here, let me read to you. They're talking about who's responsible when something like this happens. It says we're governed by ethical rules. And we have to talk about indirect responsibility. There's direct responsibility, like who is actually involved. And then there's indirect responsibility. And people saying they're not not responsible? Well, let's talk about Jewish history a little bit, they said. Let's step back and be Jews for a minute and talk about our history. When we are dealing with the issue of indirect responsibility, it should not be forgotten that Jews in various lands of exile, i.e. Europe, and also in the land of Israel, when it was under foreign rule, suffered greatly from pogroms, that means attacks on Jews, perpetrated by various hooligans. the street mobs, that's what they're talking about. And the danger of disturbances against Jews in various lands, it seems evident, has not yet passed. So this problem, we've, we were kind of hoping this was over, but you know, there are still Jews that are at risk, maybe, someplace. The Jewish public stand has always been that the responsibility for such deeds falls not only on those who rioted and committed the atrocities, but also on those who were responsible for safety and public order, who could have prevented the disturbances and did not fulfill their obligations in this respect. They said, okay, we Jews, like for the last several hundred years, have had a very clear position on this. If you're the responsible government and you didn't, if you are the government and you didn't do anything to stop something bad, then you're responsible as if you had been pulling the trigger. That's our position. This is, uh, every Jew knows this. This is what we thought. When somebody attacks us in some country, Ukraine, wherever it may be, we'll talk about the, 19, the 1881 massacres. 1881 massacres of Jews. What did the government do? Well, it issued statements and you know said, stop that. But they didn't really do anything. We hold them responsible. They didn't do anything. They could have done something. They didn't. Okay. It is true that the regimes of various countries, among them even enlightened countries, i.e. Western Europe, have sidestepped such responsibility on more than one occasion and have not established inquiry commissions to investigate the issue of indirect responsibility, such as that about which we are speaking. But the development of ethical norms in the world public requires that the approach to this issue be universally shared and that the responsibility be placed not just on the perpetrators, it's not just the people shooting the guns with the automatic weapons and the knives cutting people's throats. That's not what we're talking about. They're, They're responsible, that's for sure but they're not the only ones. It's not just the perpetrators, but also on those who could and should have prevented the commission of those deeds, which must be condemned. Well, that's pretty heavy stuff. In our view, everyone who had anything to do with the events in Lebanon, whoa, the, the whole events in Lebanon, huh? Should have felt apprehension about a massacre in the camps, everybody knew that this was coming, and the fact that you didn't do anything, please don't say you didn't do anything. We're not responsible. of course you're responsible. I think this is really amazing. this is really this is really heavy, heavy moral moral uh, uh, positions. Um, now regarding uh responsibility, they went in to talk about responsibility an indirect responsibility, direct and indirect. So they went through a list of the top people. The Prime Minister, Begin. He was indifferent. He didn't seem to want to know things. He like went off to his went off to his bedroom or something, you know, and didn't ask Yitzhak Shamir, the foreign minister, who was a really powerful, he was sort of the top three were, were uh, Begin and Shamir and Sharon. Those were the, sort of the people who governed the country. And uh, Shamir didn't ask what was happening. He made no effort. He just pretended, uh, what, what? I don't know anything. And then Ariel Sharon. At one point, there's an interesting story. Uh, here, i got a personal story I can tell you. There's one point in here, they're talking about one particular issue, and they say, well, he's got indirect responsibility for this. Okay, so that's at one point. Then, but in their conclusions, they say he has personal responsibility. Excuse me a second, let me read this for you. Um, let me read this for you. I'm sort of... Putting this down and uh, just a minute, we shall remark here that it is ostensibly puzzling that the defense minister Sharon did not make did not in any way make the prime minister privy to the decision of having the phalangists enter the camps. So he didn't. Rep- he made a field decision of significant, a significant change in policy, and didn't tell anybody. So, it is our view that responsibility is to be imputed to the Minister of Defense for having disregarded the danger of acts of vengeance and bloodshed, and not ordering appropriate measures. This is the non-fulfillment of a duty. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy condemnation. And then uh, at another place, they say uh, he bears personal responsibility. And he should draw the appropriate personal conclusions, i.e. he really should, should not be in government. and regarding chief of staff aitan Raphael aitan we draw grave conclusions is said okay wait a minute what was i told you i had a story yeah let me tell you my story there was a uh, on the anniversary of this uh, massacre uh, which is uh, mid mid september and uh, there was a newspaper uh, I think it was Newsweek. I think it was Newsweek, because I subscribed at the time. And uh, they ran a story, and they said that the, uh, that the Cohen Commission Report had found Sharon guilty of indirect responsibility. So I wrote a very polite uh, uh, letter to the editor and said that in fact, on page so-and-so, they said that he had direct responsibility. And uh, uh, so they actually ran that letter. It was nice. But they added something regarding the massacres in those camps. They added something. They put in a sentence that I had not put in. They said, the actual killing was conducted by Christians. Just, I mean, like that. Right Christians, like turn this into some kind you gotta remember that in 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 the Middle East, religious groups are really ethnic groups with religions. So the phalangists, okay, they've got they worship in a Christian church, but they're not exactly taking papal encyclicals, you know, rulings from the church and deciding how to behave themselves. They're they're ethnic groups. Jews are an ethnic group. Shia and Sunni, those are ethnic groups. The Druze are an ethnic group. They've got religions. So to think that this somehow has to do with religion. Like, oh, we're going to kill people because they have a different religion. No, that's not that's not the way it works. There's there's political issues here. These are political issues. So they changed it to make it feel better. Um let's see, what else? I'm just about finished. Uh Major Haddad, do you remember that, the southern Lebanese army? Uh, they said they were not involved. So that's probably true. They found no evidence that that, that they were involved. They did not mention the Damore Vengeance Brigade. Remember that? I mentioned to you the Damore Massacre that had occurred and a group of the young children who, now adults, who had survived that and were in a military unit called the Demour Vengeance Brigade? They were flown in, and we can imagine what they did. Menachem Begin soon stepped down. Uh, he had a couple of reasons. Maybe his wife had died. He was very distraught, and and things just got to him. So he stepped down. Later. Uh, you know, if you go to Israel in a bookstore, you can find a. Uh, the Jerusalem Post uh, was a very progressive left-wing newspaper. It's more right-wing now, but uh, or at least not left-wing. But they've got a collection of the front pages of the Jerusalem Post and with stories. And so one of the, has to do with when um, Begin is retired. And he's a very old man now, and he never goes out. And he keeps the windows closed. He lives in darkness. But he has this aide, and uh, this person says to him once, "Mr. Prime Minister, do you ever, uh, do you ever have any contact or conversations with Mr. Sharon?" And uh, Begin says to him, "Do not ever mention that man's name in my presence again." So I don't know what happened. But it didn't work out well. Uh, When Begin stepped down, he was replaced by Shamir, who was probably more right-wing than Begin. Uh, Ariel Sharon was supposed to make the correct conclusions. Uh, He got removed from his position as defense minister, but he stayed in the cabinet as a minister without portfolio. So he still was a very powerful person. Um, Appendix B, last point. At the end, it says there's an appendix. It's sealed for for reasons of national security. It's still sealed. We don't know what's in appendix B. If anybody knows, if anybody knows, I haven't seen it. If it's ever been leaked or released, I I, I don't know that. So what what's in that? Well, someone in Time magazine, sorry, uh, yeah, Time magazine, reported that Ariel Sharon had attended the funeral of Bashir Jamael, which he had, and that he had had a conversation with a top phalangist leader. And I can't remember if it was uh, the brother Amin or one of the commanders, but the newspaper report was that he had uh, he had, had a conversation. And Appendix B said... That they had discussed revenge and massacres. Okay, we don't know what exactly. Where did this reporter come up with this? Probably in a bar somewhere. I don't know. Or somebody said to him, "You know what's in that report?" And they didn't know, but they were saying what they thought was in. There. Who knows? I don't know. And he thought he had a source, but Ariel Sharon sued them, and said, "This is this is blood libel," and he sued, and. So they called the reporter and said, okay, what's your source? And it turned out he couldn't produce a reliable source. And Time Magazine uh, basically settled the suit, I think. They lost the suit. It was a libel, and uh, Ariel Sharon won, which is pretty, uh, uh, pretty shocking considering how violent he is. But he, on this particular point, he won. We still do not know what is in Appendix B. Maybe it's exactly what that news report said. But they couldn't prove it. I don't know. Time magazine issued a retraction saying this was not one of our regular reporters. He didn't have he didn't follow normal uh vetting. He didn't confirm his source, his information. This was heavy information. You should have confirmed it. And so they issued kind of an apology and Ariel wrong, I don't think they gave him a jillion dollars, but uh you know, if he won one dollar he was gonna be happy. That's all he wanted was was to have his name cleared in some in some way. So that's uh, that's the Kahan Commission report. I think it's quite amazing. There are very few countries that would engage in that kind of self-reflection. I think it's uh, to the credit of Israel that they did. But on the other hand, uh, the political forces Begin, Shamir, Sharon, Netanyahu—none of them are none of them are, are, are embracing this report, of course. That's eighty-three. Came out in in eighty-three. It's been a long time, but still, it uh, the survivors of that are now probably grandparents. But uh, the little kids who survived, but there are still little kids who survived. And um, anyway, that's the report. That's Sabra and Shatila. Uh, you could probably find things in the newspaper about that. And as I'm talking right now, it's actually, uh, what is it? Um, it's February. I'm uh, oh, sorry. It's uh, September. Just moment, Let me see. It's September what? September. Today's 17th. Oh, this is the anniversary. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks.